Hey there, welcome to the Product Hive Podcast. On this episode, we're bringing you the question and answer session from our September UX event. The discussion will explore where to begin with research, what methods to use, how to analyze and present your findings, what skills and techniques you as a designer slash researcher bring to the team, how to involve the whole team, what a research program could look like where you work, and many more topics. A big thanks to Purple and 1-800-CONTACTS for sponsoring this meetup. And finally, be sure to join our community on Slack, where there's always lots of great conversation happening about UX, product management, and more. You can get an invite to our Slack group and find more information about Product Hive at ProductHive.org. So now, let's hear the question and answer session on establishing user research practices. Well, we have a great panel today. I'm excited to be here kind of learning alongside with everyone else. Um, a lot of great questions were sent in to the Slack channel, so um, we're going to keep utilizing that. So as you see other Q&A meetups get announced, make sure to continue sending in questions. It's been, uh, been great. To kick this off, as Mike mentioned, we'd just like to have the panelists introduce themselves a little specifically talking about maybe the size of organizations that you've done, you know, whether you work with a dedicated research team or you do research as part of a UX design organization, and uh, just give us one or two minute summary of your expertise and your history so we have that context going into it. All right, everyone, I'm Trey Winterton. I currently work at Workfront in Lehigh. We have 22 product development teams, so that's 22 different scrum teams co-located in Lehigh and in Armenia. So. I did have to look that up on a map when I first heard we had an office there. When I first started, we hadn't had a researcher, uh, staff researcher in about two years. And so it was really trying to figure out a lot of processes of where are we sourcing customers from, where are we storing these things, what kind of systems we're using to ask the questions. Right now we're doing a fair amount of research, so now it's trying to retain the value of that research and make sure it's being shared publicly and looking at things like that. My name is Jan Dawson. Uh, so I work at Vivint Smart Home specifically, not Vivint Solar, and I run the research and insights team there. So we're lucky enough to have a, a team that's four of us, uh, Anita here and Dan there, and uh, one other person on my team as well. Uh, and it's, it's great to have a dedicated team. I'm guessing if we were to ask for a show of hands, more of you have research in your job description than in your job title, probably. I think that's still the majority of the cases here in Utah, that research is still somebody else's job rather than a dedicated role. Um, but we're fortunate enough to have a team. It's a longstanding team at Vivint, but before I joined, it was purely a UX research team. And when I was hired in, it was to kind of broaden the remit of the team so that it would be user research in a, in a broader sense. So we do do usability and UX research, but we also run a lot of surveys do customer interviews and, and a whole variety of other things to help mostly our product design engineering occasionally our marketing team um, to try to understand our customers what they're looking for what new products we should be building uh, what features they should have and, and otherwise uh, what they should look like and we get called in to do a whole variety of other things from time to time as well so that's who we work for hopefully Vivint's a, a familiar company to you but um and we work down in thanksgiving point Hey, so my name's Caitlin. Uh, I work at OC Tanner. I'm our only user researcher, and I kind of started in this role as a bit of a guinea pig to see if 
there was in fact uh, a need for user research and to what extent. Uh, I now work with nine teams, so I'm a little bit all over the place. I, so I've been in the role for about a year and a half and we just now are hiring our first intern. So there is in fact a need that has been validated. We're growing and it's a really fun time to be part of the team. I'm happy to be here. Hi, I'm Lindsay Martin. I'm at Lucid Software, uh, where I lead user experience over core experience for Lucidchart. I've been in Salt Lake City and at Lucid for about two years. So like new-ish, but I actually see a couple people I recognize. So that's exciting. And looking forward to talking about user research. Well, a lot of the questions that were sent in were kind of around the difference between you know, if you are lucky enough to have a dedicated research team, um, what what are the initiatives or the projects um, that, uh, where's the breakdown between, you know, what a, a product design or UX design team should be involved with research and what should be left to the dedicated user researchers? Um, is that, you know, all research done by the research team, you know, where is that, where is that breakdown and where would you, you know, what advice would you give to someone who may only have like a single user researcher and is looking to, needs to split up that work? I can speak to that really briefly just because um, we've been working a lot. My, so uh, I report to our uh, director of UX and we've been working uh, really diligently with all of our teams to empower them to do more research of their own while of course still balancing the type of research that gets done and when it gets done and who's doing it and why. Um, historically, usability research amongst designers at OC Tanner um, has not been a focus and we realized that there, that needs to change. There is a, there is a real clear need for better validation in uh, the work that we produce. And so that's kind of how we've been tackling that. That's kind of what we're looking at right now at OC Tanner on that note. Um, so yeah, we do, as I mentioned, we do have a dedicated team, um, but, and it was, you know, two people when I arrived, it then grew to three and it's now grown to four. And yet somehow we still never have enough resources to do all the work that we need to do. So right now I think we're juggling about 15 different projects for different teams uh, that are all the different stages, different types of projects. And so I'd say the biggest things that determine the kind of breakage points between what we do and what the various teams do are our availability, um, their availability, uh, their skill set. Uh, and the nature of the work that needs to be done. So, you know, we have some designers who are extremely good and extremely comfortable at doing really robust testing on their own stuff. Um, they won't ask leading questions. They really genuinely want feedback uh, on how to make it better. And we've got designers that are more along the lines of, here's my design, how much do you like it? Kind of uh, end of the spectrum. Uh, and and we've got some in between that really don't even know where to start. They just don't have the experience to do it yet. So uh, a lot of it depends on the designers and, and the product managers that we also want as to their level of experience, their level of comfort, and expertise with things and therefore how much help they need from us so that's a big a big factor um, there is a big desire in our business right now for us to do more of the sort of empowering other teams and less of the outsourced research stuff we've never been fully outsourced we always work very closely together with design and product teams but um, there's a desire for the teams to do more of their own discovery directly uh, and so we're trying to figure out ways honestly right now how to train them in doing that and a lot of that is kind of walking through it with them one of our challenges with that uh, 
um, the analogy I like to use is that it's kind of like teaching your kids to do the chores without trying to be condescending to designers or product managers. But you, you want to teach your kids to do chores because you'd really like their help. But for the first little while, it's actually a lot more work than doing it yourself because they're not very good at it. They have to do it three times. You have to keep checking it. It's frustrating for everybody involved. Um, and honestly, that's kind of the point we're at with a lot of our designers and product managers is we're trying to train them and they're not very good at it yet. So it's actually more work for us, but we're hoping to get to the point that they're empowered. They can really do it themselves. And then we move to more of a sort of supervisory role, a sort of consultant role where they're doing more of the work and they're just checking in with us occasionally. So that's the model that we're trying to work to more and more. But a lot of it just depends on where they're coming from in terms of the expertise and the experience that they have. It's the exact same. Yeah. I want to do that next time around. I'm going to let you go first. <laughs> I'm also curious, maybe just a follow-up question to that then would be, as you're working with designers, trying to help them to deepen their expertise and their skill set within user research, what are like two to three common things that you see that, you know, anyone that's looking to deepen their, you know, in the audience looking to deepen their user research skills, what are some like common gotchas or things, skills that you would suggest that people develop? or pay attention to. Yeah, I'll take that one. Learning to figure out what you're asking. You know, a lot of the questions we ask are to validate our own hypothesis or achieve an agenda. So learn how to ask an unbiased question. Uh, one good way to ask that is to say, what if I was wrong? How will the product look? What decisions will it make? Acknowledging there's a possibility you could be wrong. And so how are you gonna ask a question that could go either way that allows them to, to think that way? Putting together a, like a, usability tests, so screen by screen, what questions do you ask, how you give good directions without using maybe keywords that are on the screens, how can you give directions without being too leading, because anytime you say click the start button and there's a big blue start button, anyone can do that, that's not a very good usability test. Um, th those are the two that I think are the big gotchas, are asking questions both in person and then in your usability test, learn what are good questions. Interviewing is something that I, th I think is an incredibly powerful tool that we try to encourage not just our designers, but our product managers and, and even engineers sometimes. And it doesn't have to be anything super intense or robust, but just having being comfortable enough with what you do and what you're working on to um, to talk to people about it. And then, of course, combining that with um, some uh, unbiased approaches. Um, to, to seeking answers is maybe not necessarily a, a gotcha, but kind of one of those fundamental research tools that we, along with usability testing, really like to push for. I'll go real tactical and say that time management is critical <laughs> to being able to execute research if you're doing it like on a scrum team. Um, I Like one of the biggest challenges that I found at Lucid was truly just finding the time for it. Um, so sprint over sprint, like making sure that when you're looking at uh, what you have to accomplish to deliver um, to engineers that you actually think about like the time that it'll take to validate your work. Um, how do you set, set the stage for usability tests so that they understand that we're testing the product and not the person? Is that what you're asking? Okay. You just stole my answer. Uh, that's how I approach it is I, I I just use the, the language of we are testing the product, not you. I don't have to lie when I say this because I don't design anything, but you could also say 
that um, somebody else designed this and please don't be afraid to hurt my feelings. We, we say things like that too, because we want, I, I actually I participate in research as well, just because I enjoy kind of reversing that role and, um, and helping others. And one of the funniest things somebody ever told me was, uh, don't be afraid to tell us our baby's ugly. Um, don't, <laughs> don't, don't be afraid to throw in some humor. Um, you know, but you really hit the nail on the head. I think really just reminding people that this actually has nothing to do with them or or their intelligence, you're here to test the product. Just in addition to that, I like to reinforce that watching them struggle is like beneficial to us. I say to them, usually, you're gonna, this is a half-baked idea, this is a prototype, there are gonna be things that don't work, and when you run into those, we wanna know what those are, so please tell us what these things are struggling, because it is the product that we're evaluating, not you. So I, I let them know that struggle is good. I just chime in that quickly too. I, exactly, Caitlin said exactly what I would have said, which is just remind them that it's not them they're testing. If if any of this is hard, it's our fault, not your fault, basically. So, and then we want to know what's hard to Trey's point. Um, I think the other thing is, it's easier for us to do that if we're in a dedicated research role. It really isn't our thing. It's not our baby they're telling is ugly. You know, um, that certainly helps. Um, and if you don't have dedicated research, there's another trick that you can use is just have a different designer run the test or a different product manager or somebody who's in a similar role but is actually working on a completely different product. If it is going to be you, you could just say, we're doing research on this. You don't have to tell them that you're the designer that designed it. Like we've recently gone and done a bunch of field research in our customers' homes, talking to people about our outdoor camera um, that we've released recently recently um, and we really want their genuine feedback but the two guys that went with me were the product manager and the designer for that product the idea the industrial designer who designed it and the product manager who just launched it and the last thing we want to do going into that interview is say this is the guy that designed the product and this is the guy that is responsible for it otherwise uh, and so we just say we're, we're, in, we're on the research team we're doing research try to say something that's obviously honest but that doesn't sort of indicate who they are towards the end they may say now what do you guys do exactly and then you might say actually you know this guy did design this thing and 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 so we're grateful for your feedback because we're trying to make it better. But I think if you can either have somebody who's not directly involved in the product, that certainly helps because then they can be uh, more uh, open to the feedback, honestly. So the other thing that we're trying to do, which we haven't done very well in the past, but trying to encourage our designers to do is don't fall in love with your stuff and then test it. Like, get a very early iteration of it. Put that in front of somebody. Iterate quickly. You know, the, the longer you leave it to stew and the further down the road you get before you test it, the harder it's going to be. You know all the hours you've put into it and the sweat and blood and everything else you've put into it. Like, you're not going to want to change anything at that point. So start early with the testing. Do it rapidly. Don't fall in love with anything. Be, be unafraid to throw it away and start again. And, you know, um, I think that can help too to, to be in a, a mindful frame uh, where you can actually request genuine feedback and be open to receiving it and acting on the feedback that you get. And what is the difference in role responsibilities between a dedicated user researcher and a designer? So have you found that those roles are starting to diverge a little bit more? Yeah, I think there's uh, clear value being identified in having specialized researchers. That said, it's, it's a nice to have. The companies that have them are the companies that have the resources to put a headcount on the UX team that doesn't crank out designs, a headcount that cranks out information. So it's a nice to have role, and it is proving to be valuable, and more companies are making the budget to afford a researcher. Um, but most right now, that is still an expected thing out of the designer. One other question um, that was sent in was uh, around how do you combine qualitative and quantitative research to get an accurate view of your customer and their needs? Yeah, um, I actually think we do this really well at Lucid. So I'll talk about how we do it, um, and then you guys can talk about how you do it, and you, like blow me out of the water. 
Um, yeah, so we have uh, our designers do all their own research, and that is really just a consequence of we haven't had the luxury of being able to afford, uh, or we haven't afforded the luxury of, you know what I'm trying to say, being able to <laughs> have people who don't design full time. Um, but we also have an analytics team, and our analysts work really, really closely with the designers to help um, understand like the problem space and what we're trying to learn and marrying the qualitative and the quantitative. Um, and that can look like that can look like a designer leading out and say, hey, I have this hunch. I'm going to go down this path and learn about this thing, take it to the analysts. And they'll say, that's really interesting. And actually, I have seen something similar in the data. So let me go look and see what I can find. Or it can be one of the analysts coming to the designers and saying, hey, I see this thing in the data. I don't really understand it but I can see it's here. Like, can you help me like flesh out this story and can we work together to understand like what's really going on? Um, and it's really fantastic because it's actually enabled us to better align our metrics and like understand like where we really can make impact um, because we understand like what it means to our customers like if we see like a certain flag in our data. Um, yeah, it's been great, so. Speak to that. I'll add my two cents. That's a great question. Uh, the way that we kind of choose to approach that at OC Tanner is um, we think of quantitative as the the what, what's happening in our in our products, and the qualitative is more why. And ultimately you can't paint a full picture without both. Um, and so what type of research we do kind of depends on um, the holes we're trying to fill, what we already have and what we still need to know. Um, and so that's kind of always what we go back to when trying to decide what's going to be the best fit for our, our research needs. Chime in a little bit. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that we've done um, is we'll often combine the two in a single project. So like we recently, I mentioned we did some field research recently going out into customers' homes. We learned a bunch of things. That was qualitative research. It was, you know, going into, in the end, 23 customers' homes and learning a bunch of stuff about them. And we don't usually do that big a project. That was a big one. Um, but we learned a ton of stuff. It was for a big project that we're about to embark on redesigning some of our products. Um, but we learned some stuff. The, the challenge at the end of that was like, we know this thing exists, but we've no idea how prevalent it is within our customer base. And so we then ran surveys with our customer base to try to quantify the prevalence of some of these behaviors and other things among our customer base. And so uh, the, the two things that did for us, one was like, we, we were able to know how significant some of the trends were. Um, but the other thing is we have people internally that I think just inherently trust quantitative data more than they do qualitative insights, which is a shame because qualitative insights are some of the most valuable things that you can get. Um, but what that allowed us to do was say, we heard this and before you tell us this was only six people, we've now surveyed our customer base at real statistical significance and discovered that 60% of our customers feel this way. So, you know, that can and then back up some of those qualitative findings. And um, so that, that can be helpful sometimes for winning over certain audiences that may be more quantitatively oriented as well. Can you provide a real example where you've taken that data? It may be an example of what it was that you found in your research work. Maybe a concrete example, like this button did this and it caused this issue. And then what you did to go back to your team, what they did to change that and how that actually impacted either a revenue stream or your product, like real world stuff, that's kind of what I'd be interested. 
Sure, yeah. So I'll give an example from that research that I was just talking about. So one of the sort of central pieces to Vivint Smart Home's overall system is this wall panel, essentially this security panel that sits on your wall that you arm and disarm your alarm with and you can view your camera feeds and things like that. So the focus of this research was going into customers' homes and seeing how they were using this thing on the wall. Now we have a bunch of analytics data that tells us what functions people use on that panel and based on some of that data and just a general sense that people are very smartphone centric we have people internally that kind of say hey this panel isn't being used nearly as much as a smartphone is and you know the data shows that and we feel like more people are using the smartphone maybe we should just ditch this panel thing and so that's kind of an ongoing debate internally so we went out and in these customers homes and one of the big things that we discovered was yeah you know there are things where you go and touch buttons and, and touch the touch screen and interact with it in some way but actually a lot of the uses of our panel just involve glances so like looking over to see the arm state of our panel so our current panel has this little light underneath it that just shines on the wall it's a nice subtle signal but it's green when it's disarmed and it's red when it's armed and so it's something that you, you never touch anything and so there's no analytics associated with that use case another thing is when somebody rings the doorbell if you have the doorbell camera that feed pops up on the panel as well and again you just look and you see who is it do i want to go answer the door uh, or not basically and so those are both things that our analytics would never have told us but that by going into customers homes and talking to them we discovered those were actually really big uses you know the team that we were doing the work for who came with us which is an important part of field research we actually had them come with us and see this stuff for themselves uh, they said this seems like a significant thing let's figure out how much our customers actually do this in you know across the base of customers and so we then ran a survey where we asked you know how often do you use these two things on the panel which again we had no analytics data for because it doesn't involve a physical interaction and we found it was actually really prevalent and so as a result of that and some of the other things that we discovered um, you know the, the team that's working on our next generation of this product is like it has to have a screen it has to have or at least it has to have some kind of visual display elements that can serve up some of those same needs so you know as I say there was this theory internally that the panel was less important and maybe we could kind of ditch it and we actually learned no this stuff that we're not seeing in analytics we discovered it through qualitative research we backed it up with quantitative insights from a survey and now that's really informed the direction of the future of that product so I think it's a good example of that process Okay, one other question. Um, something that I, I, I've noticed in the industry is there are a lot of, in Utah, there are a lot of small to mid-size companies, right? And you have a team, maybe either a single designer or a small team of, of designers who have to do their own research. In that kind of an environment, what would be your advice to start establishing a user research program? What are like the two, first two to three steps you would encourage to really start being able to design with data and not just gut hunches? That's a tricky question. I think the first thing you'd want to do is figure out the right research thing because you're going to need buy-in and you're going to need people backing you. Uh, and if you're going to want to ever do a second research project, you're going to want people to like your first research project. Really speaking with the leadership of your company, figuring out where their blind spots are for your roadmap 12 to 24 months out, and then start asking those questions and doing a research project there. I think once you've established some street to asking questions that bring value to the company, you'll get a little more resources. And so, so for me, that's where you start is, is picking the right project and, and finding something people who have resources want to know and going after that. Yeah, the question is what, so a small to mid-sized companies where either research is a new thing or maybe they've done a little bit, but it isn't a regular part of the process and the designers want to start designing with data and both qualitative and quantitative insights, what are maybe the first two to three things you would recommend that they, you know, to help establish a user research program at the company? 
I had a slightly different approach. Um, I, I was fortunate enough to have uh, a director who kind of made that argument for me and allowed me to take a slightly more granular approach at kind of figuring out how to make the role successful. And I basically just, similar to what Trey mentioned about figuring out what research projects to work on, I did that at a team level and I spent a lot of time trying to identify with product managers and designers um, and engineers what their biggest hurdles were and trying to figure out if and to what extent user research should be helping with that uh, to kind of embed myself in um, their process and, uh, and, and the success of the product as much as I could. Um, I can share what worked at Lucid, um, which was that uh, I came into the organization and they were very interested in establishing user research practice. Um, the designers, most of the designers that worked there when I entered the organization didn't really have a lot of experience with it, um, came from maybe more like front end backgrounds, hadn't done a lot of it. Um, and so like they were hungry for it, but kind of didn't know where to start. And I feel like it was like a, where you have like too many choices and they were just like trying all the things and just like calling all the people. Um, so what, what was actually really effective for me was um, one, finding champions like that were like really wanting to help kind of bring this to fruition. So I um, latched on to a couple of the analysts um, some of the product managers that were just like really passionate about it. Um, and then we chose like a problem to kind of prove it out. So we chose like, what do we know about users in their first seven days in our product, which is like, a you know, like a problem that's like kind of universal and everybody can relate to that, even if that's not exactly what their feature set is about. Um, and we went out and did some research. We went out and did some like really thorough qualitative research and came out and came back and did a readout to the group. And it was just amazing the momentum that that generated. Um, and suddenly everyone wanted a piece of it and everyone was coming to me like, oh, but I have this idea and I have this idea and I want to know this and I want to know this. Um, and uh, it, I think that was like the push that Lucid needed for people to really um, pay attention and double down on it. Yeah, it's incredible what just adding that little element of visibility um, and transparency will do to um, a research practice suite. We've seen similar things at OC Tanner. I sat down with the designers on my team, for example, and I said, okay, like, let's look at your roadmap. What are you working on? Like, what are your delivery dates? Like, what are we working toward? Um, okay, this is when you want to turn it over to your engineers. We'll recruit users here. We will schedule testing here. Um, and it was really exactly that. Yeah. <laughs> Something also that we've seen that we've that's worked well at OC Tanner for us is um, Starting really small, conversely, what what's failed miserably is um, trying to approach questions like that with giant research proposals that are just going to scare everybody away. And um, and also Trey touched on this earlier, but kind of encouraging uh, research in small bites. Um, there's there's no reason that research uh, that you know a simple usability test. Um, should take days to complete. Um, these are tests and there are so many tools on the market today too and, and methods that um, that are rapid and that are made to get you answers quickly. And so I, I would highly encourage anybody in a similar boat um, to just look at your op options as far as um, what those tools are and methods, uh, ways in which to do um, really quick user research because m more of them are than not. Um, and so, that makes it a lot easier to insert 
the research into processes that are already existing. Um, so as far as prioritizing research, we come across this quite often where <laughs> now that we have this momentum around user research and around um, the desire to do it, sometimes we almost have to kind of rein ourselves back because um, not everything justifies being researched. Um, ultimately, we try really hard to focus on whatever's going to have the biggest impact, and that's kind of where we start. So oftentimes, one of the things that we've been working on with all of our teams is creating user journey maps to identify those key opportunities for uh, for impact in, in the product. And that doesn't mean that uh, something that has less potential for impact uh, isn't worth researching, but as far as prioritizing, uh, that's kind of how we tackle that. That seems to be working really well for us, and, and obviously it has a, a bigger impact on the bottom line. I think that depends a lot on the research itself and what it is that you're trying to learn. Obviously, different methods uh, are going to require a different amount of time, uh, not only to run, but to synthesize. The number of people involved is also going to make a big impact on that time frame. But also kind of going back to starting small, you know, you don't have to spend a week interviewing people and analyzing results and picking participants. Um, start with if it's possible, just taking a design around to a few people in the office and starting to collect feedback that way and use that as kind of a, a catalyst for your next steps. Um, so, so starting small, I don't know how to answer that without going through all of these research methods and giving you, and, and even that wouldn't really be accurate. Um, but does anybody else have? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's, it goes back to a point you made, Caitlin, and the previous answer that you gave, which was that so many of these things can be done in a shorter time or a longer time, depending on the level of detail and the fidelity and everything else that you want to get to. So I think, you know, there's no single answer to how long does usability testing take because a lot of different methods you can use. You could test it with five people or 10, 20, or you can do it online through a platform like usertesting.com where you can bring people into the office and the amount of resource and time it's going to take is going to be highly variable depending on the exact methodology that you use. Um, one of the things that we encounter a lot is people come to us and they say, we need this and we need it by next week. And, um, you know, and oftentimes what they want is some huge thing that if you were to do it well, would take a month, you know. And so one of the things, the skills that we've started trying to build, and honestly, we're still working on it, is is making clear to them the trade-offs between time, elapsed time and the quality of the output. Like we can do something for you in a week. Uh, ideally, we would do these three things and that would take us a month. If you give us only a week, this is what you'll get. And this is the difference between those two things. And just trying to help people, the designers and product managers that are coming to us to, to understand the trade-offs and then make an informed decision about that. But there's almost always a way to do some quick and dirty guerrilla version of whatever it is that they want to do if they insist on that and the timeline's completely non-negotiable and then there's often some way to do it in, in more depth and covering more ground and investigating more aspects of it or whatever if you want to do it longer so there's no single answer for that reason I think. Really quick before I, I see the hand over there but to your first question of uh, which, which methods are most important I, I have an opinion and you know there's no science behind this but for me the two things research efforts you must do if you're going to ship a remotely good product is discovery work and then some sort of usability test with a production-esque product so it could be an envision prototype it could be uh, an alternate production environment but if you 
do your discovery work, you'll have a clear roadmap of the jobs to be done. Uh, if not, your roadmap will probably get a little bloated. Not just because we can build things doesn't mean we should build things. So by doing your discovery work, it'll really narrow in what you're focusing on, what you're making. And then you never know what you're going to get until someone takes a look at it. So always put some sort of clickable prototype in front of somebody. Those are the two things that I think must happen for, for a good product to be shipped. When you're establishing a user research program and you're kind of at the beginning and you're starting to have some traction. One of the challenges that, that I've seen at a few different companies is recruiting, right? Getting, actually finding users so that that process doesn't take weeks um, because, you know, we have deadlines and there's agile process and all that kind of stuff. So what are some um, ways that you have been able to streamline the research participant recruiting process? When you do get somebody, so it's, it's really just asking people. It's constantly inviting. It's asking every customer you interact with, would you ever be willing to test our product? Um, and then when you do say, do you have anyone on your team who'd be willing to test your product? And then you just get, keep, like for us, if you're, if you're starting out, if you're a small team, get a quick list of people. You know, start with five, grow to 10, 20, and then just try to get that list as big as you can so you're not oversaturating your feedback. Um, but ask everybody to invite their team members to things and, and get that list as big as you can, as quickly as you can. We've tried to capitalize on um, client relationships. We have this history of not, OC Tanner has struggled a lot with end user research and talking to people who use the product. We're a B to B to C organization, which makes that process really difficult at times. But one of the things that we've really started leveraging, seen a lot of success is just reaching out to folks in um, client service reps um, and even sales reps that have really good relationships with clients who they know would be willing to let us talk to their employees, i.e. end users. That has worked really, really well. And of course, that's nothing's free. It takes time, but we're not paying for um, a service and and people are willing to give us their time for free in cases like that. So I can't remember who asked that question, but Lucid is, is the um, my first startup. I've worked in consultancies and very, very large corporations, and I have never had so much respect for the job of recruiting users as I do today. Um, it's hard. It's hard. And it's a lot of work. We have leveraged our customer success partners to do a lot of that for us. Um, so they'll, through um, uh, customer engagement, customer education, webinars, and things like that, um, they will identify users who are willing to uh, like do product testing with us, capture like their use cases, um, kind of capture like their like how we like score them in terms of their proficiency in our product, um, and all of that goes into a uh, content management system where then we're able to scrape it for participants. Um, but it is tough. It takes time. It takes time. <laughs> yeah. 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 So I'm thinking about all of you. Is, do you have anything? One of the keys that I've, I've noticed too is to, in case this hasn't been clear, I think a few of you have talked about it, but just like making sure you have a, getting to the point that you have a go-to list of people that have said, yes, I'm willing to help out on a, you know, semi-regular basis so that you're not starting from scratch every time yeah. you're recruiting. At least that's been the thing that's worked probably the best for me, but it is something that I've seen a lot of people struggle with. So I definitely appreciate your Depending on what company you work for, you might have some compliance issues. So make sure, you know, if you're like in a fintech or like medtech, you're making sure you're not doing anything you're not supposed to be doing. 
the, I think the thing would be to make sure you're capturing the metadata that you want to capture. So like for us, it's like what account do they work for? Uh, how much revenue does that account speak to? What's their role at the company for persona things? So as you build that list, I would say just make sure you're capturing the metadata, then also tracking how frequently you've contacted them. That way anyone else can see if you're over contacting someone or under contacting them. So I would say you want to talk to non-customers. You can buy them. They're available online at like user interviews or respondent.io. But get a good screener to make sure you're finding your target market, right? the right audience, uh, but people who aren't currently aware of your product. That, that'd be my suggestion. Uh, yeah, we use Workfront at Workfront. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm on the, the short list of the new hires, so I work with recruiting. I get an email every Monday of the new people that'll start the following Monday, and we pick from that list often, yeah. Maybe kind of a related question um, is, you know, is there a difference between like the way you approach user research for a consumer product as opposed to like a B2B product where you know, you might be dealing with maybe discovery of the product isn't as important um, because they're being like it's being installed on their machine and they have to use it kind of a thing. Is that a consideration? Do you approach the research projects differently in those two environments? That, that's a little bit how it is for us. Companies, some um, project manager, director of operations buys Workfront and then 100 employees at a company get told you're using Workfront to do your work. Um, we're, we're totally aware of this. And if anything, it makes me more empathetic because no one wants to use something like it wants to be forced to use something they hate. So we're really focused on our end users and trying to make their productive tool suck a little less. So I, I, if anything, it makes us more empathetic for, for me. Yeah, I mean, we're on the B2C side, so it's obviously a more straightforward relationship. And, and I think Caitlin was describing kind of the opposite end of that spectrum, the sort of B2B2C, where you've got some intermediaries. I think that's often the case for what Trey was talking about, too. You've got the actual buyer, and then you've got the user, and you've got to figure out which group you're trying to talk to. But even in a B2C environment, you've got to be clear on, you know, there's the main account holder in, in our context, for example, and then there are all the other users. And, and one of our challenges is we have an email address or a phone number for one person in the house, Household, and we could talk to that person all the time and get one perspective. And then there's all the secondary users. There's the, the spouse, there's the kids, there's the mother-in-law that occasionally comes to watch the kids for the weekend and has to use the security panel on the wall. And so, you know, I think every, in every environment, you probably have multiple tiers of users, some of whom are easier to get to, some of whom are a bit harder to get to. Uh, and so you just have to make sure you understand that and that when you need to, you get exposure to the right personas or whatever you want to call them to, to answer the questions that you need to answer. Great. One of the one topic that we haven't covered yet that I want to make sure we get to is is around documenting and aggregating the results of research and how that you know differs between like large organizations or needs to evolve between like uh, you know more mid-sized company and as you start to get into like large enterprises with multiple design teams multiple you know dozens of stakeholders and that kind of thing so um, it's funny I, I've had to answer that question before as well and as user research has grown at OC Tanner the answer has changed but first and foremost getting people involved in the research has been really instrumental sharing the results of the research and kind of creating little mini evangelists for the work that was done and uh, and its impact so um, one of my objectives uh, was always or, or a focus was always to get as many people from 
whatever team I was working with involved in the research. So it wasn't this kind of chuck over, you know, a, a research request to Caitlin and wait a few days and get something back that nobody's going to ultimately use or remember. But as user research has grown and as uh, our department is growing and our teams are growing, and especially as we're starting to move to this new platform where our teams are merging, uh, it's become more important to be able to access research that was done previously and see what was learned, what the outcomes were, what the impact was, uh, obviously as a refresher at times, but also to avoid duplicating work that had been done already and, and wasting time in that way. So there's, again, there's so many different tools, free or not, that you can use to help store and share research. I'm actually in the process of demoing a couple right now um, and playing around with some of those to see what works best, not just for me, but maybe for a future researcher to come in and, and get running with and also anybody and anybody that would uh, like or, or need access to that information. So product managers, engineers, designers, and anytime a new summary is done, I try to share it with as many people as I can and bug people until they go look at it and give me feedback to better understand if it's resonating with that and if it's useful. So I don't know if that, so as far as tools are concerned, um, for what it's worth, I'm playing with one called Dovetail right now. Um, again, there's a lot of, there's a lot of such tools on the market, but that's just one, that's one option. And um, it's definitely helping across our teams. When I first arrived at Vivint and, and took on managing this team, one of our biggest challenges was that there was no process for this at all. And so we'd get asked about past projects and it was like, well, it's either on this person's hard drive or on that person's hard drive and that person left and we can't get into that computer anymore. And so like we have a bunch of stuff that was just lost and it's a tragedy because it means we have to repeat the stuff or people do their best to remember it and probably won't do a very good job. And so one of the first things we did was say, okay, we're going to establish a, a folder structure on the tool that we use and have a standard way of storing this and number our projects so it's easy to figure out which one's which and just have a standard way, you know, have a readouts folder in each of those folders where that's where you go if you just want to see the outputs and that kind of thing. So the main area where we've made progress in the year and a half or so that I've been there is, is the documentation so at least the members of our team know where to find stuff. And I can go back and easily find the project that I worked on last year. Um, so at least now, you know, our team is kind of the front end of that system. Um, we don't have a software front end. It's a human front end and we can go dig into it. At least we know how to find stuff. But the next step will be trying to find more of a, a platform that can be more of a self-serve thing. And I think the biggest challenge there is simply that um, the diversity of the type of research that we work on I mean that no single tool is going to be ideal for storing all the many different types uh, of research that we do unless it's just literally a folder structure and it, then that needs some kind of a front end to make it navigable for people. So that's our next challenge and we obviously haven't cracked that yet. To your point, making whatever system you do decide to go with relatable to whoever's using it. So finding an, a, a naming convention that works for your organization, uh, using tools or, or placing these solutions in areas where people are already working is, is going to be really beneficial to making sure that it has the biggest impact possible. Kind of related to that. So we don't have like a robust way of storing research so that you could go in and say, I want to go look at research. But we, the way that we handle it at Lucid, which is a little different than I've done it in the past. First of all, we have monthly readouts. So once a month, the whole product org comes together and we share what we think is like the most important research. Like, so you read out, you know, what you think is like really important to share across the organization. And we have biweekly, and that would be every other week, um, UX team syncs where we also share research just within the UX organization. 
And then as a company, we use Confluence to document just like work that we're doing. So like big initiatives. Um, and we have a template that we use for Confluence that kind of follows any initiative through its life cycle. And there you would find uh, research that was like specific to um, a project or an initiative that we'd taken on. So I'll just say the, the storage and documentation part is hard. There's not a silver bullet answer for that one yet. We're also working on that. Uh, as far as sharing your research goes and how to, how to get better at that, we have a product town hall every Thursday at 8.45 where our CPO, our engineering team, our product management team, uh, design team, we all come together and we all talk about things. And so when we have product managers or designers wrap a study, I try to specifically go out of my way and say, hey, will you talk about it in town hall? so that it gets publicity to any other teams that want to talk about this. Uh, we post, we started a research newsletter, so all of the product department gets a newsletter every Friday. We're going to be experimenting with a Wednesday send soon. Um, with all the research that's going on across the various teams and then links to the pages where those are being documented. So it, it does feel at times like I'm spamming my own department with research stuff, but I want them to be able to access it if they're looking for it. One other thing that I've, you know, that I've noticed in, you know, talking with designers, interviewing, you know, for for designer roles and just looking at the background that a lot of, you know, the level of experience that a lot of designers have with research, you know, it seems like a lot of people have done interviews, a lot of people have done usability testing, but but maybe, you know, the user research techniques for a lot of, whether it's because of expertise or just what they're allowed to do, kind of ends at those two. And so I'm curious, what I, the question then would be, what, gen, what are some examples of generative user research techniques other than interviews and, and maybe, a, I guess, open it up to evaluative to other than usability testing? Like, what are some other techniques that you guys have, have used just so people here have an, have an idea of what's available and what's in the toolkit? On-site observation is really cool. Recently, we watched a blind guy try to use our product. That was insightful. So if, if you're only doing over-the-phone interviews, get out of the office, go find somebody, watch them use it for real. That would be a good one. Yeah, and in addition to like contextual interviews, um, I have done diary studies, which people are surprisingly willing to participate in. Um, collaging activities, um, where you ask them to collage the way that they um, feel about an experience. Usability testing is actually really critical, um, whether it's moderated or unmoderated. That's something we haven't really talked about is kind of like that split between um, moderated usability testing and unmoderated. Um, unmoderated is fantastic for like strict usability and it's really quick. And if you use um, a lot, like a lot of services, I mean, you can get like 60 responses in 24 hours. It's really great. Moderated is a little bit better when you're still maybe working through some things conceptually, um, when you want to like prove out concepts um, and it's not really about like clicking. So those are some things. There's there's other things like card sorting activities, which is good for understanding the way that people understand information or group information. Surveys can be actually really effective if they're well written. Um, tree testing, which is another like architecture way to test like architecture and information. Yeah, there's a lot of things you can do. 
yeah, I mean, it's it's a long list, and I think um, Lindsay covered a lot of the ones that I would have mentioned too. Um, we did one, and, and I can't take any credit for it. Somebody was on our team last year who's since left, but it's a technique he'd used before, which is basically, and it goes by a number of different names, but collaborative design. We actually bring customers in. You give them a problem to work on. You have them work with each other, put a designer in the team just to kind of help get the ideas out on paper and so on, but just have customers think through what's the wild and craziest way you can think of of solving this problem. And you're never going to build the thing that actually comes out of that, but there will be aspects of that thing that actually do have merit. Um, and uh, that can be a good starting point for thinking about some real world solutions that maybe aren't so far out and actually are a bit more realistic. So that was another cool tool that we had somebody on our team use, which kind of produced some interesting results. Can I add a, to that question? I had a CIO uh, that I used to work for said that customers can never be innovative. They don't know what's next. They just know what's before them. Do you find that's true? Have you found you've actually gotten innovative solutions coming from your customer base when you've done this testing? Um, I mean, in that particular case, yes. Um, I mean, that's a very specific technique and it's it's pretty labor intensive and you have to recruit a bunch of people to come and do it. I will say, you know, you do have customers that have some great ideas, but it's very hard to find, you know, we've got a million and a half customers and we might have a couple of hundred that are really good at that. We're never going to just find them. It's like a needle in a haystack. So it's not something we can bank on necessarily. What your customers can tell you is, is what's wrong with your current product, uh, what the gaps are, what they're trying to do. Um, they may well tell you about, I, I use your system to do this, even though that isn't something that your system is designed to do. And so you can think of that as a desire path, you know, which is this idea that you, know, you go on any university campus, you have these nice quads and the paths that go around them, and then you've just got this dirt path that goes straight across the middle of it. And that's like, that's where people actually want to go. And so over time, some universities have been smart enough to just pave those paths. You know? And so if you think about that from a UX perspective, you watch somebody using your product or you interview somebody about using your product and they say, well, you know, in our case, I'll give you an example. Like somebody runs a preschool in their basement uh, and they have this problem where occasionally the, the kids will just bolt and head out the front door. Well, they um, started to um, turn on their alarm system while they were in school. And so the minute the kid opens the door, that alarm blares and it scared the life out of the kid. And so now the kids don't do that anymore, you know. And that wasn't something that um, our system was ever intended to do. Um, and yet it's something that they, that, you know, and so it surfaces a use. Okay, you know, people want to keep track of their kids. And we've heard similar stories from we, we, our Vivint Gives Back program uh, is focused on families who have kids with special needs, for example. So we give discounts to families who have kids with Down syndrome or on the autism spectrum, for example. And uh, we hear stories about parents who are using our system that are un completely unrelated to security. It's about knowing when their kids are out of bed in the night when they shouldn't be or, uh, you know, wander out the door in the middle of the day when they shouldn't be or other things like that. So, you know, it kind of teaches you, okay, we were never designed it for that, but maybe that's a need that we should be trying to serve. Like, how do we enable parenting and not just security? And so those things can be really helpful in that sense too, I think. And that's, again, not something that your customer wouldn't tell you, your system should do X, but you can still learn that from that, even though the customer would never tell you that directly necessarily. Um, it's not your customer's job to innovate. I'm sure that your CIO did not mean that um, in a condescending way, but uh, it's our job to exactly, as Jan said, understand their motivations, their needs, and their gaps, and then to synthesize those findings, and it's on us to innovate. So like that's, that's like the bigger point of user research, right? my little philosophical stance. <laughs> when you do user research and you take what you learned 
and you go through everything that you heard, like the, the idea is to come out with like a story, like you should focus on things that make you curious, things that like challenge your assumptions, things that challenge the way that you think about the world, your users and your product. And those things are gonna give you a signal, right? So you might talk to like five users, you might talk to 20, you might talk to 65, you might talk to 124. <laughs> Whenever I did research in the past, it was always in like multiples of 12. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> um, so there's not like a magic number. I mean, there, there are some like theories about like where like you should, like the number of people you should talk with usability testing and then it like, but like you're, you're looking for things that can kind of like help you understand like directionally something that's like really important, right? And then like, take that and, and turn that into something that can start to fulfill those intents that your users have when they come to your product. Um, so it's not about numbers, it's about like, where can I take this signal now? Like numbers are probably also important like to your business and like making money. So I think that's where it's like important to like partner with like your analytical um, colleagues and kind of help. But, but again, like the signal comes from you, like the signal comes from like the story that you can tell with what your users are telling you. You feel it? You feel it in your gut? <laughs> can somebody make that better? <laughs> in, in, in my experience, uh, similar to Lindsay's point, there is no magical number, but I know that when I'm starting to hear and see patterns in responses from people that I'm speaking with, that I'm onto something. Um, once I start hearing or seeing the same thing over and over again, um, then I know I can run with that. I'm safe to run with that. I'm safe to dig a little further or take, take that to the next level, whatever that is. Um, so it could be five, it could be a hundred. Um, it, it just depends, but really ultimately, once you start seeing patterns, um, I feel uh, you're, 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 on, you're onto something at that point. I think, I think what I'd say to kind of build on what Caitlin was saying was it really depends what kind of decision you're trying to make, right? So if you're trying to make a decision about what's worth investigating further, uh, then five might be perfectly all right um, because you're starting to see a pattern and now you say, okay, I'm going to go talk to more customers about this to investigate it further. Or I think this, this indicates there's a need for this. Let me mock up something and go show that to 10 customers and see how do they respond to this is actually, actually it's compelling to them. You know, if I'm trying to make a decision, do I go build a $20 million business? And obviously just talking to five users and seeing a pattern is not nearly enough. And, and usually that would be a huge leap that no business in its right mind would ever go through, right? You usually go through a whole variety of steps and this goes back to the question that was asked earlier about when do you do when do you prioritize research it's like all the way through this long process where you do some discovery in the beginning that informs something you maybe put that in front of a customer as a as a value test not a fully fledged out uh, prototype but just like here's a concept how do you respond to this and if that seems promising then you might go to building some kind of very basic prototype to put that in front of somebody and you know you keep iterating and, and so um, at different stages the amount of signal you need will be different because the amount of investment you're going to make in as a result is going to be different. And so there's, again, no right answer, but um, you start to see a pattern emerge that may be enough to move on to the next phase of that. But then you want to keep iterating on that process, basically, and moving through a flow of product development, ultimately. 
I mean, you know, I'll give a, a specific current example. So the, the one member of our team that's not here is uh, doing a ton of work right now on basically baselining the usability of our app. So we're, we're, uh, somebody's proposed a redesign of a big chunk of our app, and so we're baselining our current experience so we can measure the new proposed experience against it. And so we're doing tons of usability testing, uh, and the home screen of our app is the way that you arm your system. Um, and at some point in the past, somebody decided that we want to make sure that's not just a simple push button because people could accidentally arm their alarm system and then get in this panic state about having to turn it off. And so it's deliberately got a little bit of friction to it. It's been a number of years since we've done any testing on this thing. And so, you know, we're putting this in front of people who've never seen it before. And it's actually taken them quite a number of interactions to figure out how to do this thing. And it's, you know, I don't know if any Vivint customers here that actually use our app. Okay, one or two. So it's the home screen. We have this widget that arms the system, and you basically have to hold down on it, and you swipe it one way for if you're going to be leaving the house, and a different way for if you're staying in the house. But you have to hold this thing down and then swipe it. Uh, and the first time you use the app, there's a little bit of text above it that basically tells you to do that. But people just don't read text uh, in apps. They just are highly visual, and they just want to go straight to doing the thing. And so you see a bunch of people like tap it, and like nothing happens, and they tap it a bit more, and like the color kind of starts to change a little bit. Like okay, maybe something's happening, maybe I better hold it down a little bit, and then they start to figure it out. But it's like, in the process of trying to introduce a little bit of friction and avoid a particular problem, we've probably introduced a bit too much friction in there. Um, and you know, that's something we never would have known from talking to customers, because like, once you figure that out, you figured it out. And it may even be kind of a delightful experience, but knowing how much friction is involved the first time you do that was a bit of a surprise. That's just a tiny example, it's a recent one, but um, it does relate to a mobile app experience. Uh, I was just going to say, it's, it was surprising uh, when there was a time we thought something wasn't going to test well, and it came back that people really liked it. That's always a big surprise when uh, maybe a stakeholder has pushed an idea forward that some of the individual contributor team members aren't that sold on, and then you go put it in front of a customer and it does really well. That's always nice. It's a nice surprise. I want to thank the panelists for joining us today. Uh, I'll just ask one final question to, uh, uh, I, I just would like to open it up to, you know, for each of you to just kind of give us, what do you wish you had known about user research before you s actually had, when you first started, I guess? For me, I think it was that I was gonna have to sell people on aha moments. You know, I'd be doing some things, crunching some numbers, and I'd be like, I solved it, we've got this. I'd go tell someone and they wouldn't seem less than jazzed about it. Um, so I think learning how to sell research was something that I didn't expect I'd have to learn how to do. I think it'd probably say how much, how actually fascinating and how much fun it could be. If I'd known that, I probably would have moved in this direction a lot sooner. I've been doing different kinds of research throughout my career, but um, you know, the kind of in-depth user research you get to do, where you get to really talk to users, see them actually using a product, that's just fascinating and it's really fun. Uh, and if you're at all a curious person, it's a great career path to pursue. So um, I think that's the biggest thing I would say. While we're up here, I'm just going to give a quick plug. I don't know how many of you are unaware that there is a research channel in the Product Hive Slack group. Anybody not know that? Okay, so most of you are in that research channel already. For those of you who aren't aware, there is a research channel. I think all of us are in there. We do organize some regular lunchtime meetups where we talk about a lot of the questions that you guys have been asking today. So if it's something that's of interest, then join that channel and, and look out for, for news about that. Sorry to interrupt the flow here. Probably the biggest aha moment for me was when I realized how critical it is to get stakeholders involved in your research. And by stakeholders, I don't I don't just mean leadership and executives, but team members, engineers, 
obviously product managers and designers and really let the research speak for itself. Um, and I learned this most painfully the first time when um, I was working on a research project. Actually, it was just a usability project for one of our teams. And I kind of went off and did this work by myself and then came back with all these really, what I thought were really cool findings about what is and isn't working well in the, in the product. And my findings revealed that users were making their way through the product. Everybody was technically succeeding in the, the task that they had been given. But it was taking people upwards of five plus minutes to complete a really simple task. And to me, that was striking evidence of a poor user experience. And I'll never forget this day because a lead engineer looked at me and said, if people are completing this task, what's it matter if the experience is good or not? And I wanted to slap this kid in the face because I didn't have a good answer. So it was a rough experience, but a, but a wonderful one because it just showed me how important it is to get people involved firsthand uh, and to see what you're, what you're seeing. Um, and anyway, so that was probably one of my biggest kind of aha moments and what I would recommend. Um, I think for me, it's that research isn't like the process isn't precious. Like it's just about people and connecting with people and caring about people. Um, it's super human. Um, and it's, you know, like it, there, there are processes and there are like quote unquote best practices, but it's, it's really just about people. So just get out there and connect with people. Amen. <laughs> Great. Thank you. Uh, Join me in a round of applause and thank you, thank you, our panelists. A big thanks to our panelists, Jan Dawson, Lindsay Martin, Trey Winterton, Caitlin Grandjean, and to Jeremy Bird for moderating. And another thanks to Purple and 1-800-CONTACTS for hosting the event. If you learned some things from this discussion, be sure to share it with your team or share it on Twitter and mention us at product underscore hive. Sharing these talks is a great way to support Product Hive. As always, be sure to check out all our upcoming events. You can find them by searching for Product Hive on meetup.com. And while you're there, go ahead and join the group so you always get the latest updates. We also have a YouTube channel where you can find videos of all the past talks. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in your feed soon, and we'll see you at one of our next events.